Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman. Thank you all for listening. Today, we'll be talking to Alison Crosby and M. Britton Likes about their book, Beyond Repair, Mayan Women's Protagonism in the Aftermath of Genocidal Harm, published in April 2019 by Rutgers University Press for its Genocide, Political Violence, and Human Rights series. Alison and Britton, welcome to the show. Could the two of you begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, such as where you were born, where you went to school, uh, any mentors you had? Sure. This is Alison here. Um, I was actually born in Malawi in Africa to Scottish and Canadian parents and went to university at Cambridge in the UK. And then I did my graduate work at York in Toronto. Hello, I'm Brinton, and I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and made my way up the East Coast studying in Virginia and then at Harvard Divinity School before completing a PhD in social structure and community psychology at Boston College. Great, thank you. And both you have a history of interest and research in Guatemala. Before turning to your book, can I ask uh, what drew you drew your interest to Guatemala and Mayan women in particular? So in the early 1990s, I did some work in Montreal with um, refugee communities there, particularly Guatemalan and Salvadoran communities. And that led me to working for a couple of years in Mexico and then Guatemala with the um, refugee, Guatemalan refugee movement. And in particular, with uh, predominantly Mayan refugee women's organizations. And I was so impressed and inspired by their organizations. And this led, those relationships led to my future, both research and activism in Guatemala, including living in Guatemala in the late 1990s following the signing of the peace accords. And I did some later work for the Canadian Social Justice Organization into Paris, where I managed their Mexico and Central America program for six years. And this included accompanying the beginnings of the work supporting Mayan women who'd survived sexual violence during the armed conflict in Guatemala, which began in 2003. And it was my engagement with the beginnings of that work that led eventually to this research project that we began in 2009. And I met the Guatemalan community for the first time in Nicaragua shortly after the Sandinistas took power there in meeting the Guatemalan church in exile who were Mayan peasants who were fleeing the massacres in the early 1980s in the northern Quiche regions of the country. And at that point, I had been in, involved in a lot of women's organizing in the United States in the greater Boston area and anti-racism women's organizing, and more particularly in the uh, U.S. out of Central America community-based protests, in, again, in the United States. 
And I was drawn to my ignorance about Guatemala uh, when I met this group um, and the ignorance I had about the massacres. That is that I had not even known that they were occurring in the early 1980s. And I, the only explanation I could offer myself was that it had everything to do with racism and that it was um, indigenous or native peoples that were being slaughtered. And that's why it wasn't making the news in any part of the United States. I had the opportunity to coordinate uh, two women who, Guatemalan women, a Mayan woman, and uh, a young psychologist, actually, who wanted to come to the U.S. to speak with U.S. women about the U.S.'s role in Guatemala and particularly in supporting the massacres. And in that process, connected with um, a group in the United States, a network in solidarity with the people of Guatemala that had been acting in solidarity with peasants in rural communities. And to shorten a story, that contributed to my engagement with refugees in the outskirts of Mexico City for a number of summers. At that point, I was particularly interested in exploring a set of psychological questions that had emerged in my dissertation, which was a critique of Western psychological individualism underlying many U.S. and European psychological theories of the self. And I was motivated to better understand communitarian or collective processes. And the women refugees in the outskirts of Mexico City were very much organizing in that way. I also met Ignacio Martin Barro, the Salvadoran social psychologist in El Salvador. And we began to collaborate with people from Argentina and Chile in trying to operationalized participatory action research with youth and children uh, living in war zones and living under dictatorships in the global south. And we organized a project together and then later started a network in mental health and human rights. And from that point, I began working with a Guatemalan health organization in Chimaltenango, which is just out of Guatemala City working with them over about a decade on and off while teaching in the United States during the academic years, always wanting to collaborate with rural women. But during the armed conflict, that was not, as they called it, a convenience. So it was later in that process that I was invited by a Mayan woman I had met in Mexico when she was an adolescent to join a group of women who were starting to organize in the rural Quiche area of Chahul. And I collaborated with them over, well, now it's almost 30 years on and off living in Guatemala, about six years overall in that process, but um, returning to that community every year and had the good fortune to meet Allison during one of her multiple projects. And we began collaborating around gender violence and racialized gender violence issues and then had... um, based on some of the connections she had with the um, National Union of Guatemalan Women, began this project that's um, recounted in this book. Thank you, both of you. Um, You touched on a little bit in each of your introductions, um, but I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit more about uh, about Guatemala's colonial history, the Civil War, and the genocide, uh, and the violence that Mayan women have faced. And then, Britton, you also mentioned the role of the United States. Uh, I was going to save that for later um, due to my own interest in that, but I was wondering if you could maybe uh, talk briefly about that as well. 
So um, Guatemala, as Brinton was mentioning, was devastated by a 36-year armed conflict between the Guatemalan state and guerrilla forces that ran between 1960 and 1996, but obviously with a deeper colonial history. And the conflict itself had its roots in deeply skewed inequities of economic and political power that resulted from a historical and ongoing system of colonial dispossession of indigenous lands and livelihoods since the time of of Spanish conquest, so over 500 years. And this colonial system contributed to the dispossession and exclusion of the majority indigenous population from socio-political and economic life. And in its final report released in 1999, the UN-sponsored Commission for Historical Clarification, which is one of Guatemala's truth-telling processes, found that more than 200,000 people were murdered or disappeared during the armed conflict, 83% of whom were Mayan. And the report documented massacres that destroyed 626 predominantly Mayan villages, and found that between 500,000 and 1.5 million people were displaced within the country or beyond its borders. And both Brent and I referred to work with refugee movements, which were obviously um, crucial in organizing um, against the the war. And the report concluded um, that at the height of the state's scorched earth policies in the early 1980s, acts of genocide were committed against particular Mayan communities. And in the book, we use the terms genocidal violence and genocidal harm to refer to the violence committed against indigenous peoples during the armed conflict and in recognition of the targeting of Mayan communities as a whole by the Guatemalan state and paramilitary group. So the UN-sponsored report also highlighted um, around 1,465 cases of sexual violence uh, perpetrated against um, women during the war, 88.7% of which were perpetrated against Mayan women in particular. However, this number is considered to be a fraction of the actual cases of sexual violence that were perpetrated during the war. And the work that we document um, in the book um, with uh, Mayan women survivors of sexual violence arose in part because of what were considered to be the report's uh, gendered silences and gaps. And so this work um, sought to accompany Mayan women protagonists in telling their truths and seeking redress for sexual violence, but also for the broader racialized, gendered experiences of violence. And an underlying tension that we explore in the book is between, on the one hand, the importance and absolute necessity of breaking the silence around sexual violence as a weapon of war and crime against humanity in Guatemala, um, while at the same time avoiding a hyper focus on sexual harm as the only form of racialized gendered violence. And this is an issue that um, I can come back a bit to a bit uh, further on in the, in the conversation. But Brinton, do you want to say a bit about the, the role of the U S? Yes. Well, books have been written about this, but I'll briefly say that the U S has a longstanding involvement in Guatemala and probably most widely 
identified as part of the um, underlying contradictions and causes of the armed conflict is the U.S.'s involvement uh, in the overthrow of the democratically elected government in Guatemala in 1954 and the facilitation of the installation of dictators and um, armed military who took over the head of states that installed the repressive regimes that Allison just described. And even when Jimmy Carter was president and um, determined that the U.S. should no longer be supporting the military in their uh, fight to repress indigenous communities, they trafficked money into Guatemala through Israel, money and arms for uh, numbers of times. All of these processes have now been documented and are available for anybody who would like to read them, although there continues to be an ongoing social amnesia within the United States about these issues and an inability of those of us within the United States to recognize the root causes of the migrations that have been uh, resisted at the borders of Guatemala and Mexico over the last 20 years in particular, but since the 1970s when people began to flee these conditions. The Mayan communities, it's interesting in my work in Guatemala during the armed conflict, that is before the peace accords were signed, working with rural peasants and facilitating workshops and training experiences, they know the history of the U.S. involvement in Guatemala. They have great clarity about it. And they have great skepticism or had great skepticism about what any people from the United States were doing in their country. And so the involvement with these communities and the engagement in these communities has always required uh, incredible recognition of our own history and an acknowledgement of the roles that we have played in Guatemala and has been a, a very important development of an understanding of how a people can know its history, can recognize the roles of governments, but can also embrace each other as human beings. Um, and so my experience in working with peasants, particularly during the armed conflict and then into the peace accords and thereafter, has been an acknowledgement and recognition. And I've learned a lot about how they see us as North Americans and as trained in Euro-American psychological processes and theories and research. Thank you. Uh, a quick follow-up. Um, Allison, I was going to ask you, and then uh, you may have some more to add. Uh, is it, or is it different to be from Canada than the United States in your experience? And, That's exactly uh, and what I was going to, <laughs> to, to add. Um, it's very interesting that, you know, during the war, um, I think Canadians were viewed um, differently than um, than people from the U.S. And, and the, the Canadian embassy um, played a particular um, role in supporting some people as they moved into exile. However, that has changed significantly in, in the post war period or however we want to refer to this moment that that Guatemala is in currently given the the rampant role of extractive industries in Guatemala which has of, of course always been a key aspect of um, Guatemala's colonial history and and you know part of the reasons for the dispossession of lands that I was talking about before. But Canadian mining companies in particular have played a very um, controversial 
role in Guatemala in the post-war um, era. And, um, and Mayan communities have been very active in resisting um, this, you know, current era of extractivism as a new form of, of colonialism and the, and the, the, um, the de- you know, the devastation that this has um, wreaked on their communities. So now Canadians are very much seen um, in Guatemala as, um, you know, through the lens of um, extraction, the extractive industry, and particularly Canadian mining companies. So, so that it's, it really has shifted in terms of, so, I mean, similar to what to, to what Brinton was saying, we, we very much as Canadians have to see ourselves um, as part, you know, within that context and our activism um, and research on these issues really has to take this into consideration. And, and you know, just when going, we're going to talk a bit about this, the Seipu Sarko case and the Seipu Sarko community, but just going to that community you know, you have to go through areas that have been de- devastated um, by Canadian mining companies and has led to situations of increased violence that are ongoing. So again, that sort of link between current forms of violence and repression in Guatemala and the past through the role of, of um, economic colonialism is something that we really have to, to think about seriously. Definitely, especially uh, considering the um, approach to your research, uh, and you know, you employed a feminist participatory actions research approach. Um, can you describe for us the methods you used in your research and why you chose them? Um, and then also uh, any ethical concerns that um, that arose from this type of research. Sure, um, I think the. Um approach we took in this process is deeply embedded in the notion of what some scholars have referred to as dialogic relationality or the importance of recognizing the kind of histories that we've just been talking about, but also the need to establish what Patricia McGuire, an early feminist uh, participatory action researcher who worked with Native Americans here in the United States uh, around gender violence issues, called Just Enough Trust by which I understood her to mean that there are structural and systemic reasons and historical reasons why peoples from North America, both Canada and the United States, and peoples from rural communities in Guatemala, particularly indigenous people, would not trust each other, might not trust each other, do not trust each other. But over time, one can begin to develop relationships in which one begins to recognize that there are reasons for which one might want to walk alongside each other or journey together or what Paul Farmer, the medical anthropologist, refers to is uh, walking together in pragmatic solidarity. And that solidarity, he understands to be solidarity that's grounded in a deep analysis of the material conditions which constrain the lives of those people living in these communities but also recognizing that they are the ones who call where you can walk and how you walk. Or Mary Watkins, a counseling and clinical psychologist, refers to it as psychosocial accompaniment, that is walking alongside. So we looked for resources and strategies through which we could develop these relationships of accompaniment, which were built on the histories that we described when we were introducing our links to Guatemala and to the Mayan communities, but also 
traveled through the relationships that the women with whom we worked in this book, the 54 Mayan um, protagonists, as we refer to them, relationships that they had already built. So we connected with them through this um, NGO that I referred to earlier, the National Union of Guatemalan Women. And they themselves were interested in strengthening their research skills, particularly their research skills in participatory and action research. So the methodology that we identified was one with which um, we were both familiar, and I particularly had been working um, with these resources in rural Guatemala, but also involved a lot of um, embrace of what we refer to as creative methodologies or creativity, drawing on theater and art and creative storytelling as resources that would facilitate communication across different language groups and within communities that had um, not had significant formal education, but had uh, considerable wisdom from their own community knowledge. Um, So we combined these creative resources and the participatory action research through our commitments to a gendered and racialized critique of Um, a lot of Euro-American research strategies. That is, we tried to build processes that clearly reflected our anti-racist perspectives and our feminist frameworks. Thank you. And um, what about the ethical concerns about uh, working with the the population? There were, um, and always are, I think, critically important ethical concerns in any work in zone, well, in any research, but particularly in zones of armed conflict or in communities emerging from um, the genocidal violence that Allison described. One of the challenges is that the traditional ways of thinking about ethical concerns in developing research do not necessarily um, incorporate some of the ways in which this kind of participatory research um, might uh, cross boundaries or create conflicts. That is, they typically um, look at the possible experiences of trauma that um, people have gone through in these uh, contexts, and they want to be sure that there are psychological resources available for them should they uh, recount stories that would um, threaten their psychosocial well-being. We were constantly aware of this and in our collaborations with local people. These women had access to any of these resources, but we focused much more on thinking about how power circulates in these relationships and how we could facilitate processes whereby our local um, protagonists, the Mayan women, but also the um, Mayan and Guatemalan Ladinas with whom we partnered in this process, could um, recognize that the data belonged to all of us. And we negotiated these relationships explicitly as we formed our um, agreements with people. And then we revisited them on a regular basis. I think other issues that are um, ethical issues that emerged in this process, as we facilitated um, creative workshops where people could... um, perform both through dramatization and also through the arts, their understandings of 
uh, gender oppression and also of racism, we didn't always have agreement among ourselves as to what those performances were about and how they were interpreted. And um, I think one always has to think um, creatively about how to process these disagreements, how to document them, and how then to report them in the interpretive process. So another um, ethical dimension of this was this sort of ongoing uh, coding and interpretation of data with the protagonists and then bringing those interpretations back to them to review, um, bringing them back to the professionals with whom we partnered, and then dialoguing about the um, ways in which we wanted to present the findings of the book. And then we brought the book back to those communities as a way of, um, once again, checking that um, how we understood what we were seeing and experiencing was how they understood what they were seeing and experiencing. I think one of the really critical guidelines for us in thinking about the ethical dimensions of this research was to move away from what Eve Tuck and other Native scholars have referred to as damage-centered research and to empathize with the suffering, what Arthur Kleinman refers to as a social suffering in these communities, but to recognize that these women are, as we identify them as protagonists, that is, they have a much more integrated life, that is, uh, life as peasants, life as mothers and grandmothers, life as activists, and that those lives, in addition to their experiences of sexual assault, were critically important to document. And then finally, when we entered into this relationship through Unamhe with these women, the women made very clear that they did not want to retell their stories of sexual violence and of being violated. And we agreed with them that we would not be about asking them to retell those stories, so that we were about documenting their search for justice, truth, and reparations, but using the already told stories as they had been told in previous work with Unamhe and other organizations, as they were told in the legal cases that Allison will talk about in a bit, um, but not to invite them to revisit those experiences. Thank you, Brynn. Um, it sounds uh, like a sort of complex uh, you know, relationship um, you, know, you had with your research to uh, the Mayan women. Um, sounds like something you had to uh, navigate. I'm sure you planned um, ahead, but then also had to adapt as things evolved. Um, you, uh, you, I was going to, sorry, just moving to a, a slightly different line here. I was going to ask about the, the Mayan Cosmovision uh, which came up numerous times throughout your text. Um, could you explain to our readers what the readers with the Mayan Cosmovision is and what influence it had over uh, the protagonist's engagement with the formal and informal justice proceedings? This is another question around which multiple volumes have been written and increasingly written by Mayan uh, scholars themselves, which is a, a wonderfully important recognition of uh, the complex understandings of the Mayan cosmovision um, that exist, and particularly complex vis-a-vis the different ethnic linguistic Mayan groups in Guatemala. But in brief, and for fear of oversimplifying, 
it's a worldview, it's a value system, it's a set of ways of understanding the world and one's relationship to all living beings in the world, including the natural environment or what many Maya call Mother Earth. The belief that all living things and time are integrated, are interconnected, the belief that life is cyclical and it moves in cycles and that generational relationships are critically important, the understanding that when we plant, we give thanks to the earth and we perform rituals through which these beliefs and these understandings are manifest. And in the armed conflict and in the massacres that Allison described, there was an act of assault against um, not only the Mayan people, but also their understanding of who they are in the world and their spirituality, their worldview and their world practices. So uh, rituals were disrupted. People were not allowed to participate in them. This worldview and these understandings and this understanding of the collectivity and the communitarian aspects of life have also been expressed through a variety of different uh, conflict resolution or judicialization processes. And what's interesting about the women with whom we worked, and Allison will talk a little bit more about this, is they represent Mayan women who engaged with Euro-American trained psychologists, feminist activists, and lawyers in processes that um, are more traditional to what is referred to as transitional justice or the juridical systems that have emerged in the global north. There are other anthropologists, Lisolette Vian is one, who have worked with Kekchi women and men in the Kekchi region, north of the region that the women we worked with came from, in which they have... um, performed more traditional Mayan judicial processes to resolve some of the conflicts around the armed conflict. So the Mayan Cosmovision most definitely was a part of some of the women's lives that we worked with, and we incorporated it into our time together when they initiated wanting to facilitate rituals at the beginning of workshops that drew on candles and looked at the four corners of the earth and represented them with flowers and with different colored candles. But some of the women were more influenced by Christianity and others of them were more influenced by other beliefs. So it's definitely a part of their understanding of themselves in the world. Um, One of the things that I had to learn uh, years before this particular set of collaborations is that um, I typically enter these situations wondering what people see as their primary understanding and affiliation. And I came to realize that people, all of us hold diverse understandings of the world and move from one to another in sometimes not very conflicted ways. I think additionally, and how it influenced our work is that some of the intermediaries, that is some of the professional women with whom we worked were Mayan activists, psychologists, or healers, and they had been involved in a Mayan collective called the Women of Kakla and had developed a very um, important understanding of themselves as feminists, as Maya, and as 
believers in the cosmovision, but people who are interpreting and reinterpreting through their lived experiences and through their work as a community of women, what it means in today's world to talk about gendered racialized violence as a Maya. And so their understanding of the cosmovision helped us to embrace it as a living being, developing set of um, beliefs and a spirituality and a worldview. Thank you, Brynn. Um, before moving to the transitional justice processes, just uh, one more question about these complex relationships. Uh, Britain talked a little bit about the protagonists and, and intermediaries. Um, between protagonists, translators, intermediaries, and others in these complex relationships, can you describe how some of these relationships were navigated? Uh, yeah. Briefly, um, one of the things, as I mentioned before, we uh, when we negotiated a relationship with Unam Hay, uh, one of their priorities was to uh, strengthen their research team. So we had um, Vrishna Kajak, who is a Guatemalan member, was a staff person at Unam Hay, and she was a core member of our research team for a number of years, and. Um, we facilitated, initially, we facilitated workshops, not only with Unam Hay, but also with a group of psychologists to work with an organization called ICAP and a group of um, feminist lawyers. Um, and the, those three organizations were partners in collaborations with these 54 women. And in those workshops, we sought to, um, we also drew on the creative um, techniques to help um, lawyers, psychologists, and feminist activists um, build ties among each other and between their organizations and our research team towards allowing us to not only express our most overt understandings of things like truth, justice, and reparation, but also to explore through the arts some of our underlying assumptions and where they interfaced and where they uh, might have diverged with each other. The interpreters, and we refer to them as interpreters because they had to translate uh, wor words, not the written word, but as we talk, the spoken word. And numbers of them had to interpret from more than one Mayan language into Spanish, and then from Spanish into the Mayan languages. And they are key members of this team and also the members um, upon which we were deeply um, dependent in order to understand each other through um, the spoken word. And also, it's important to say that they also themselves had been deeply affected, often their family members and sometimes themselves, by direct acts of violence during the armed conflict. So they were dealing with a variety of their own issues. Fortunately, they went through a training program that ACUP, the psychological organization, made available to them to deal with some of those issues. I think one of the more challenging ways of, of uh, thinking about these relationships is uh, the ways in which Allison and I positioned ourselves, and they refer to the question you asked originally about what, what is it like to be a United Statesian or a Canadian. We, we sought to incorporate critical reflexivity as an ongoing piece of our methodology in the project. That is to think critically about our own positions and to recognize those positions in these relationships. And particularly 
we were very sensitive to the issue of racism and to our own positionality as white women. And that issue has its own long history in Guatemala and its own complexities in Guatemala. And within our research team, we were not always on the same page as to how important we thought it was to think about the racialized gendered dimensions of the experiences of the Mayan women with whom we were working. And we found sometimes that we um, might have had more of a empathetic or um, shared understanding with some of the Mayan uh, intermediaries than we necessarily always had with some of the Ladino intermediaries who came out of a feminist understanding that was familiar to Allison and I from our experiences in North American feminism of looking at gendered violence as similar across all women and not thinking intersectionally about the importance of class, of abilities, of ethnic linguistic backgrounds, and of the racialization of violence, and particularly the colonial history that Allison described in Guatemala. So we negotiated these relationships as best we could. We tried to incorporate within our research process something that I think is critically important in working in all across communities, which is social time, that is time to be together that wasn't all work. Um, and also we tried to, as I mentioned before, have these opportunities for iterative reflection with the people involved in the process. And that included the presentation of the book, which we did in Guatemala after it was translated into Spanish. And we took it not only to the capital um, and to Antigua, Guatemala, but to the countryside and invited local women, professionals and Maya, including some of the protagonists, to comment on the book. So we had additional opportunities in which we could engage with people and to acknowledge and recognize where we converged in where some of our understandings diverged and some of why those understandings diverged. And I just wanted to add that in this notion of intermediaries, we drew a lot on the work of Sally Engelmary, anthropologist and legal scholar. And the uh, part of our goal was sort of how do we bring the Mayan understandings up into the international human rights community? We look a lot at how the UN conventions are brought down into local communities, but what can we learn from local communities to move that knowledge upwards? So that was a major commitment that we brought to this process. Thank you. This uh, sounds uh, very important. Um, you know, steps that you've taken um, for the research that you've done. Um, now, moving into... Uh, you know, to the transitional justice processes, um, were the protagonist's ideas and expectations about justice processes different from those typically associated with what we understand to be "quote unquote" transitional justice? And can you recount some of the protagonist's demands put forth in their testimonies, and perhaps explain what these demands tell us about the protagonist's own conceptions of justice? Um, I'm going to start by just um, elaborating a bit. We we keep referring to the the 54 um, Mayan women protagonists who actually came from three different regions of Guatemala. Um, so Kekchi women from Alta Verapaz Isabel, um, 
Kakchikel women from Chimal Tenango and Ma Manchu women from Weiwei Tenango. So, you know, building on what Brinton just said, there was a diversity of um, ethno-linguistic groups and also a diversity of experiences of the war and experiences of gendered racialized violence um, within this group. But they came together beginning in, in 2003 with accompaniment from um, the intermediaries that, that, that Winton was describing to seek um, redress for harm suffered during the war through truth-telling processes, um, demanding access to rep- reparations and seeking justice. But of that group of 54, it was 15 um, Kekchi women from Sefu Sarko who eventually decided to participate in a legal case of sexual violence as a crime against um, humanity, which was ended up at trial in February 2016, after many, many years of preparation. So um, all to say that not everyone ended up um, participating um, in this this particular trial. But, But our workshops were with all of the the 54 women to try to understand what their understandings and conceptions of justice and reparation means from from their from their standpoint um, and in addition to demanding acknowledgement of for harm suffered by the state in particular given that the state was responsible for the majority of violations and that was a key demand that came out of our workshops and came out of protagonists um, testimonies, as well as the demand um, to bring individual perpetrators to justice. And, and, you know, these kinds of demands can can fit quite well within a transitional justice um, paradigm. But where conceptions of of justice differed um, was the the central emphasis that protagonists placed on on structural harm, on seeking redress for structural harm, for the dispossession of land and livelihoods, which is at the root of violence in Guatemala and at the root of of protagonist experiences of racialized, gendered violence. So in the Seipu Sarko case, um, for example, um, the plaintiff's husbands were killed because they were organizing to demand the legalization of their lands. And uh, their husbands' disappearances led to women experiencing forced labor and sexual violence and other abuses at the Seipu Sarko military out, outpost. So the, the protagonists themselves very much see their experiences of what you could say were individuated experiences of bodily harm within a much broader structural context and very much um, situated within um, their experiences of of dispossession of of land and livelihoods. And it was very interesting in one of the workshops that we did where we were looking at conceptions of of violence and and gendered violence and what that means and what it means to seek justice for gendered violence. Um, Protagonists used a photograph of a woman carrying a heavy load to, de- to depict for them what, what violence against women means. So it, it means carrying the heavy load of in, in, impoverishment. So we, we very much saw a, a, a strain or a disjuncture between um, the insistence on, on that justice must be for structural violence and not just for individuated bodily harm. And of course, 
the two are integrally connected, which is em- very much emphasized in the Mayan cosmovision that Brinton was outlining earlier. That is to say that what emerged from, from our research is a sense of an integrated, for, for protagonists, an integrated relationship between land and body, between self and collective, between the natural and the social world. Worlds, and we we need to think about what this actually means within struggles for redress for sexual violence as a crime against humanity. Because as we trace within the book, transitional justice is very much situated within Western rights based regimes, and we have seen in you know conceptions of justice in Guatemala very much turning towards Western law. Um, as a means for redress and perhaps a turning away from indigenous conceptions of justice. And th- this is a tension that we, we explore in the book. Great. Thank you, Alison. Uh, regarding the, the means of participation of some, some protagonists who testified in the Tribunal of Conscience, you write, the fact that those who testified spoke from behind a curtain drew much attention from the audience. A little bit later, you added, relatedly, one tribunal participant argued that the organizers had not chosen, quote unquote, good victims, particularly from a legal standpoint in regard to future court cases. You know, earlier on in our conversation, um, you, know, you talked about, um, you know, women being able to participate sort of on their own terms, not necessarily re, uh, reliving the trauma that they experienced. But yet here was a situation where uh, they were being criticized for the way in which they participate, not by you, of course, but by another uh, tribunal participant. Can you talk about the importance of anonymous protagonism in cases like this, as well as how protecting their identities was used in an effort to undermine or invalidate their testimony? It's it's very interesting what this decision um, that protagonists took to conceal their identities, both in the tribunal conscious and then in the in the Sepulcro trial itself. What that the reactions, the different reactions that this pro- provoked in a number of different audiences for the trial. Uh, and this was very much a, a transnational audience. And the discomfort, this notion that one has to, I mean, Wendy Hesford refers to this as the ocular epistemology of human rights spectacles, right? This need to, this, this notion of seeing is believing in human rights regimes. That was really revealed to us through this, this discomfort um, around the decision that protagonists took to conceal their identities. And this decision was made partly for security um, reasons, given the very precarious um, situation in which the trial and the search for justice was was happening in Guatemala. But also we argue um, that it's also um, a means that Mayan women have taken to resist the spectacle, to resist the constant reduction of their experiences and their identities to the category of the raped woman. And we we argue in the book that there's a particular racialized fascination on the part of Western audiences of consuming the pain of the, mm. the racialized gendered other. And protagonists subverted these expectations throughout the process by resisting, you know, becoming the vi- visual text of suffering in these processes, and and um, that's something that we 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 trace throughout the process, both in them 
them um, concealing their identities, in them resisting the continuous need to retell these stories of harm. For example, they didn't testify live during the trial. They they used um, video evidence from the preliminary um, hearings were used instead. These were all ways in which um, protagonists uh, resisted that that replication of the, the spectacle that seems that is assumed to be so necessary to these processes. I mean, the Sepusarko case did result in a, in a guilty verdict for the, for the two perpetrators. But at the same time, the constant questioning of the veracity of what women were saying, particularly on the part of, of conservative elites in Guatemala, also, of course, um, took its toll. Thank you. Um, you know, talking a little bit more about the judicialization of protagonism um, or judicializing protagonism, uh, you touched on a little bit of this already, but um, you identify in this chapter, the third chapter of your book, three specific dimensions that emerged from your analysis of the courtroom dynamics during the trial. And these included the spectacles of suffering that the courtroom brought into being, the liminality of justice as perpetually in translation, and the embodiment of racialized gendered harm by catchy men during the trial. Um, can you talk a little bit more about each of these? Yeah, so um, the prosecutions, of course, rely on proving harm suffered. So and therefore, they rely on the creation of particular linear narratives of harm. And in the case of sexual violence, as I, I was saying before, this can produce the spectacle of the raped woman that is tied in the Guatemalan case to the figure of the indigenous woman and a particular racialized objection is produced um, through these um, narratives of, of sexual harm and the victim herself becomes an absent presence within that process and one of the tensions in the trial because women weren't testifying live because the videos were being shown they weren't the ones who were actively performing the narratives of harm within the courtroom space. Those narratives were being performed by the judges, the lawyers, the expert witnesses in particular. So it created, a, um, again, a, a, a sort of a, a, a disjuncture in this process and, and in some senses, you know, a, rep, a repetition of, of the spectacle without the active um, presence of um, Indigenous um, protagonists. So the repetition of these narratives of harm, as well as in the Sepusarko case, the display of the bones of the women's disappeared husbands as part of the evidentiary process in the trial, continuously um, reproduced um, the spectacle within the courtroom space. But, uh, you know, as I've been saying, the spectacle was also continuously disruptive and, um, and, and subverted by protagonists and the intermediaries who are, who are accompanying them in the case. So I think, you know, it's very important for us, you know, to, to emphasize, um, you know, how women are continuously asserting their resilience and their protagonist, protagonism in, the, in these processes. It's not just this repetition of um, objection. There's an intentionality to their decision to participate um, in these processes. Um, you know, it's interesting, one of the, the, the protagonists in the case, you know, we, and we quote her in the book, she says, I am a miracle because I, am, I survived. And to me, that's such an articulation of um, resilience and ongoing 
protagonism. And in, in thinking about the liminality of justice, or we refer to it as justice in translation, for us, um, and this draws a bit on, on what Brinton was uh, talking about in terms of the process by which you know, so many intermediaries co- uh, collaborated with protagonists in bringing the case to trial, the meaning of justice itself is always mediated, is always in construction and in, in translation. Um, it's caught up in the relationality between plaintiffs and their various interlocutors in the courtroom space, the lawyers, the judges, the expert witnesses, as well as the interpreters, the mind um, interpreters who are translating between Spanish and Kekchi. But also there's a constant translation and mediation going on between Western and Mayan um, ontoepistemologies. And that's, again, you know, how we thought about um, the liminality of, of justice within the courtroom, courtroom space. Uh, it's interesting, I mean, just on the issue of interpretation as well, there's no direct translation of rape in many Mayan languages, including Kekchi. So uh, as Brinton was emphasizing the role that that Mayan women interpreters have played in these processes in terms of, of um, helping us <laughs> as audiences understand the complexities of, of, of what sexual violence means to Mayan um, protagonists was an important um, part of um, all this process. So for us, the meaning of justice itself is always caught within and between Western rights regimes and Mayan ways of knowing and being between the self and the collective, between land and body, as I was saying earlier. And as such, that's why we think it's important to pay attention to liminality and what happens at the border and in the in-between spaces. But we also concur with a lot of scholars who who emphasize the the actual impossibility of of translation of pain and suffering that one can never actually know the pain of the other. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, of Vina Das's work and others. And and so what does that mean in in the space of the courtroom? And for us, it provides that impossibility of translation also provides a space for women's uh, protagonism that evades the capture of Western rights regimes. There's always something else. Their protagonism is always so much more extensive than that which the courtroom space seeks to capture. And then in terms of the embodiment of of racialized gendered harm by Kekchi men during the trial, we're very conscious in our own work and and in other feminist scholarship um, on war and and, um, violence that there's a tendency to reduce gender to women and women's experiences. And of course, it's important to highlight the experiences of women that have been silenced and have not been paid attention to, and that's a major motivation of the book. But we're also concerned about the reification of gender and the fixing of particular categories, for example, of of victimhood to women's bodies and of perpetrators to to men's bodies. And it's, you know, in situations of war and, you know, in Guatemala, of course, the the lines between victim and, and perpetrator are much more blurred and particularly for um, indigenous men. So 15 Kekchi men testified um, in the trial and and for most of them, it was their first time testifying in public space. And they were testifying as witnesses 
um, to the protagonist's experiences of harm, but they were also testifying to their own experiences of, of racialized, gendered violence. And most Indigenous men in Guatemala and in the countryside were forced to um, police their own communities through the, the civil patrol system. And you know, they were often expected to betray and, and inflict harm upon their own community members. And some of the witnesses in the trial talked about their experiences within the, the civil patrols, for example, being forced to build the Seipu Sarko military outpost itself with the materials from their own homes. So they had to destroy their own homes to build um, uh, the the military outpost. They also talked about the loss of um, their masculine authority as, as community leaders within the experiences of militarized violence. And we were very struck in their te- um, testimonies, you know, by how emotionally and, and physically embodied their testimonies were. They pointed to their scars and they expressed their anger at what they had experienced. And and we thought, you know, without wanting to sort of overdetermine men's experiences, that it was an important way in which we can loosen the tie, the gender ties of how we think about the categories of, of victim and, and perpetrator um, within experiences of, of gendered racialized violence. Thank you, Alison. Your discussion there reminded me um, quite a bit about, uh, and the research uh, overall reminded me a bit about uh, Eva Van Roekel's uh, book on phenomenal justice, violence, and morality in Argentina. Um, you know, I similarly interviewed her for this podcast, and I asked her a similar question um, about a quote that she uses by Laura Figueroa uh, that says, justice is not about the outcome, it is about the process. Uh, would you say this also applies to your research? And relatedly, what did you learn from your research about understanding historical violence and seeking to reconcile it in the present? Yeah, I would absolutely concur with this assessment that, that justice is about the process. And protagonists' decade-long struggle for justice has brought them together amongst themselves. I mean, they were able to see that what they had experienced was not just an individuated experience, that they weren't alone. And that in itself was a, you know, a tremendous realization and and really, you know, strengthened their, their protagonists, as well as their relationships to a range of different um, intermediaries. And we also saw through this in the process as well as in intersection with other um, civil society organizing around um, Guatemala's genocidal violence, a strengthening of civil society organizations and, and forms of, of collaboration and, and cooperation and between victims movements and, and, and civil society organizations, as well as the strengthening of community level organizations. So part of the outcome of the Seku Sarko trial was the creation of the Halok'u organization in Seipu Sarko. So yeah, I would completely agree that it is really it's about the process and the kinds of movement building and organizing um, that um, comes out of these kinds of processes. And in terms of thinking about historical violence and seeking to reconcile it in the present, I would draw on Avery Gordon's work here in particular and her notion that the past is not the past. And, and in, in Guatemala, colonial violence is still ever-present, or as Gordon would say, it haunts the the post-genocidal landscape as a seething presence. 
And I think this is key to how we think about racialized, gendered violence in Guatemala and the fact that the past is not the past and structural injustice lives on. And so does the struggle against it. Great. Thank you. Um, well, we are nearing the end of our time together. I do have one uh, final question um, before we get into our closing. Uh, and what I'm about to ask you, you've been sort of, it's been present throughout our, our conversation today. Um, but, you know, at the end of each of your chapters, you have concluding reflections. And in chapter five on accompanying protagonism, you write, as white North Americans, we have been humbled by the multiple ways in which we have been challenged to interrogate our own possible I'm sorry, positionalities and privileges at the intersections of racism, patriarchy, and impoverishment through these years. Would you be willing to uh, share any additional thoughts you have uh, with our audience about what you learned about yourselves and about doing this type of research? Um, yes, I think we both would. I'll start um, to say that um, in part building on this notion of process, I think uh, one of the things that was confirmed for us is that the participatory action research, which focuses so much on process, was a good fit for the uh, search that we sought to accompany with the Mayan protagonists. And also that Brandon Hamber, among others, has talked about reparation, all reparation, as being symbolic. So I think this issue of historical violence and the haunting dovetails importantly with this recognition that as important as it is to demand that there be some material reparations in these processes, we have to recognize that um, they do not bring back the husbands, they do not bring back the children that women are seeking, nor do they bring back their integral embodiment that was destroyed in some ways through the violence that they experienced. I think for me, one of the other things that... um, I learned was the incredible challenges of um, contesting white supremacy as it appears in uh, my own life and in the context in which we are working. One of the notable celebrations at the Saperzarco trial was the presence of many international feminists who commented on it and the uh, tweets uh, and the coverage in social media But the absence of any articulation of the racialized dimension of the gender violence was particularly impactful for thinking about. And then the other is is, has to do with interpretation. And um, it reminded me a lot of my early work in Guatemala with peasant farmers. But as Allison was saying, there's a uh, they're not easy translations between some of the terms in the multiply diverse Mayan languages. But one of the um, things that uh, struck me and that uh, was very important in thinking about collaborative partnerships across such um, chasms of difference is the notion of um, repair. And the Mayan words that some of the interpreters used in some of the languages had to do with uh, patching, patching a torn vestment or a torn piece of cloth And within the word itself was the notion that there was no way to make it whole again and no way to bring it back to what it was before. Um, So that when we engage from the North with some of the language of transitional justice, we have to adapt that language in order to build a bridge to the experiences of Mayan communities 
And we had to develop a critical understanding of transitional justice to recognize that reparation was symbolic, whereas the Mayan people have it built into their very language. And if we knew better how to taking uh, drawing from the work of an uh, Indian philosopher, Ramon Panikar, if we knew better how to stand under people in order to listen to them, we might be able to build better bridges and to build stronger collaborations. So in many ways, one of the ways in which this work has continued to facilitate my um, commitments to stand in pragmatic solidarity is from standing under and listening deeply. Just a... Um... I think Brinton has captured a lot of um, what I would say, but I think it is, as Brinton was saying, an ongoing struggle with the pa- that we've had with the power and privileges that have been accorded to us, and particularly within an ongoing history of colonizing knowledge production of Guatemala by outsiders. And how do we not continue to, you know, reproduce that and and you know following on from from tuck and yang you know this notion that decolonization is not just a metaphor what what does that mean in in our practice because it's very easy to say that you know one is a decolonial feminist and one wants to practice those kinds of um, um approaches but what does that actually mean in in practice and that's something that um you know, I've continued to struggle with. And, and I think as well, um, linking to what Brinton said, you know, a particular emphasis on the gender dimensions of these processes. I mean, it was very striking how the, the Sepu Sarko trial was, was, was represented as a victor, victory for gender justice, but a complete erasure of indigeneity and of, of, um, from that. And I think the, you know, the transitional justice um, paradigm has been encouraged a, a, a turning towards Western rights regimes and, and how do we turn away and how do we turn towards um, and learn from and center um, indigenous and Mayan onto epistemologies and practices. And I think that's something that it's important for us to continuously, you know, integrate into, into our work. And it was very interesting when we did the book tour that Brinton was mentioning earlier in Guatemala. And it was a, an amazing opportunity to to see how people engaged with what we had to say and often disagreed as well. And it became a space for um, conversation and critique and moving our own work forward. I mean, the, the tour itself generated a whole um, series of ideas about where to, to go with this work and conversations with new generations of, of Mayan women scholars and activists, which for, for me was tremendously inspiring and I think we we have a lot to learn from them and that I think relationality is is key I don't think the answer is stepping away but um, I do think that we are embedded in these systems and practices of racism and the role that white feminism has played is something that we continuously have to um, think very intentionally about in our own work. I just want to add one last piece to this that I think is really important. In the book, there's a drawing on page 49 that was done by some mom Mayan women in one of our workshops. And there's a, a, a representation of a figure on the upper right side of the 
drawing. And in the methodology we use to, in, to work with these drawings, the group interprets the drawing before the people who actually did it get to talk about what it meant. And this figure was interpreted by many of the others in the room as being the military or as being the authoritarian president or as being the police. And when the mom women described the uh, drawing, they said, actually, no, it was the intermediaries. It was those of us from outside their communities who worked with them. And we talk in the book about their that image and that conversation about the image reflects in some ways this dialogic relationality that we've been talking about. That is, they saw us as a part of the process. But we also think it's important, and some of the comments that Allison's made um, and what I was mentioning before, that they recognize how power circulates in these relationships. And we were imaged as much taller and bigger. And, uh, and we are physically taller, but we also are that's a representation, we think, of the kind of in representation of white supremacy, racialization, uh, a non-critical understanding of your American issues, et cetera. So, so I, that picture brings back these, uh, reminds us of their interpretations of uh, who we understand ourselves to be in these contexts. Thank you. I'll definitely have to take another look at the picture. Fortunately, I still have my copy of your book at home with me uh, under the pandemic situation here. Um, well, Alison Brin, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, before you let you go, I do have one last sort of closing question, which is, and maybe it's coming from the response that you've gotten to your research. Are the two of you working on anything new together or, or, or separately? Um, yeah, we do have one of the follow-ups from the book and from the conversations that we had um, as part of the book tour, we're interested in, in um, going more in depth in this question of, of justice in translation, and in particular, the role played by Mayan women interpreters and intermediaries um, moving between Western and Mayan ontoepistemologies. So we're interested in working with Mayan women interpreters um, as a, a sort of follow-up to this to this project. Um, I'm also currently directing a, a project um, remembering and memorializing violence transnational feminist dialogues which brings together feminist scholars from a range of and artists and practitioners from a range of contexts and disciplinary perspectives to explore the transnational dimensions of how we collectively remember and memorialize violence and particularly colonial and militarized and, and state violence. And we're also collaborating on a book chapter with one of the Mayan protagonists who worked as an intermediary in this project and who is a member of Kakla, uh, deeply connected to our conviction that uh, the voices of Mayan women need to travel more in the North. So despite um, the critical need for interpretation and translation throughout the process, we're working with her to, to complete this chapter about Great. women's protagonism as, a, as a, a, an alternative way of thinking about the psychological construct of resilience. Great. This all sounds very interesting. I look forward to, to reading your forthcoming work and uh, perhaps we can have you on again. Um, and thanks again for joining me and, and take care. 
Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for yeah. reading the book.